Veda. Today, I have a really cool interview with Sophronia, and I just have to give a little disclaimer and apology that the sound is just not great on this interview. It's such a good interview. I didn't want to not put it out, and I didn't want to have to re-record it because then it wouldn't be authentic. So this is just our conversation it's a really great conversation, but I just apologize that the sound is not great. I'm not sure what happened or why the sound ended up this way. I must have done something wrong, um, but I did the best I could to edit it and make it as uh, as good as I could make it. So bear with me. I apologize. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks. Okay, welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. This is Ada, and I have a really special guest today. I have Sophronia. Did I say that right? Yes. Sophronia. Okay. Um, here with me, and she is going to talk to us a little bit about... She she reached out to me, what, maybe a week or two ago, and you I told me so. a little bit about your story, and I was super excited to have you come on the podcast because I think that you have a really compelling story, and it includes a topic that we haven't covered yet on Dissonant Daughters. So I will let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. Go ahead. Hello, I'm Sophronia. That's my my Mormon handle. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> you can research who Sophronia is, so that's where that came from. Okay. But, uh, but I mean, this isn't a Mormon story, obviously, but it's I am fifth generation uh, LDS. My ancestor, great-great-grandfather, was a childhood friend of Joseph Smith. And, I yeah. read that, and I was like, no way. He was like a friend yeah. of Joseph Smith's. Yeah, and so um, he had seven wives. I come from the second. Okay. And then his son had three, and I come from the third. And they were actually married just a day or two before the post-manifesto, or not post-manifesto, but the original manifesto of polygamy, and they fled to Mexico. And my grandfather was actually born in Mexico. And anyway. um, Oh, my goodness. So... On my mother's side, she's a convert, but um, okay. but on my dad's, uh, that's my history. And you know, I loved the gospel. I I really loved it as a child. I I loved bearing my testimony. I, I loved the attention I got from that. I, I loved the spiritual experiences. I really thought this was the only place I could find that, and I I really took on that exception Mormon exceptionalism of oh, aren't I so lucky that I happen to be born in the one true church? Oh, one hundred percent. I understand that. <laughs> anyway, and I got married young. I was twenty. Got married in the Salt Lake Temple, and you know did the things, check the boxes, and then as I matured, things started to not work for me, and I didn't like them. And I've never been a quiet person. Mm-hmm. I always spoke my mind, but I was obedient. And I understood there are things you can and cannot say. Yeah. And I, when the ordained women thing started with the women praying, that was actually my kind of benchmark. And I went, yeah. I didn't participate with that, but I watched with eyes wide open. I followed that story. I wanted to see what was happening. I really thought that the church had unleashed a giant. They, they had, you know, attacked Godzilla. Yeah. And and the women were gonna really get their voice heard and, and they didn't. Yeah. And I didn't either. And you know, that just didn't change for me. 
And so that's where I am here. And I, I didn't question. And so the topic today is excommunication. And I'll just say it. I was excommunicated. And I didn't really start to look at outside sources until that happened. I approached it like a, an investigator, like a convert. Yeah. You know, look at it like anyone else. And oh, my gosh, my mind was blown. And I knew actually quite a few things before. Um, I mean, polygamy wasn't a shock to me. The ages of Joseph Smith's wives were, mm-hmm. uh, the situations were, the volume was, um, all of those things. Uh, it, I, I got a whitewashed version of it. Totally. History. I never got the version of the Book of Abraham. I never got the version of certain things. And there were certain things I observed, you know. And so it didn't take long. It just collapsed. So let me go back really quick and ask you. So when it came to the ordained women movement, did you ever uh, speak out in support of it or were you keeping that to yourself? No, I totally kept it to myself. And not only did I keep it to myself, I actually bore my testimony during that period of why it is (laughs) such a complete thing of the priesthood. Because I compared it to... Because my child was baptized like a year before or something, one of my children. And okay. and I said how sweet it was when I I saw the two of them, her father, the, sitting together and whispering to each other before it started in their white. And I, I said, you know, as a mother, they come to me when they're sick. They need me. I get to, I nurse them. I did all of those things. This is a one saving ordinance that she needs that I can't provide for her, but her father can. You know, mm-hmm. and I said that perfect balance. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. no, I totally. Yeah. The line. <laughs> but in my heart, I was dying for it to happen. Really? And I said to my mother during that time, and I said, you mark my words in my lifetime. It will happen. Women will hold the priesthood. <laughs> and so and she's like, oh, honey, I don't, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> she was waiting for the lightning to strike. She's like, oh, no, yeah. don't say that. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> Do you still think that, that the women will get the priesthood in your lifetime? I think they'll have to. Yeah. I think this this new generation, I mean, we see it with our daughters. Oh, yeah. Before they're like, why would I stay with this? And it's getting to the point where the boys are embarrassed to stay with it if they're not going to give it to the women because they they take on that role of that that misogyny and it makes them look bad. Yeah. So I think, I think it's going to have to, I well, mean, it's just, Oh, sorry. I didn't have to be a prophet our age. that does it. Right. And uh, also I think it may come as a necessity because there won't be enough <laughs> like oh, worthy priesthood holders in the men to like run regular wards and stuff. I mean, that is part of the reason why they're merging a lot of wards now because there's so many inactive, uh, people, there's not enough active priesthood holders, so they're going to have to give it to women at some point. Have to, they're going to have to. I agree, and it's fascinating that there are more men leaving than women. I think, and I find that really interesting. Yeah, it is yeah. very fascinating to be kind of in this circle at this time in our lives with the church and such, and just to be paying attention to what's happening. So, okay. So two years ago this month was when you were excommunicated and you were an active believing Mormon at the time of your excommunication. Is that, did I understand that correctly? Yes. And so tell me a little bit more about that. Like um, you said that it was shortly after your excommunication that you really started to dive deep and, and lose your, uh, testimony was that as a direct result of like seeing the horrible experience of excommunication and how barbaric it was 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that was the thing I really couldn't reconcile. And that was even before it happened to me, that was something I, I never understood. And, and I, I knew that there, it was so subjective that there were various things. There were people that and should have been and weren't. And, and I mean, just a case in point, the recent thing last year with the Arizona, the guy that killed himself, you know, remember with the child abuse, mm-hmm. he went through a court, he wasn't excommunicated the first time around. And that was, a, and that was when they did for the full high council. So you had 15 men plus a note taker. You had 16 men sitting there. Yeah. And he wasn't excommunicated. Not only that, he wasn't reported. Which yeah. just blows my mind. If you had even one woman in there, I think it would be reported. Oh, one hundred percent. But, but it was. But the the thing is, and then I, I really, a couple things before that. But also, Jesus never excommunicated anybody. I mean, right. if it was truly that important, he would have done that in his ministry. Yeah. And you know, it's just. And also, when you look at the history, and I did know some of the history of the church that I did know it was kind of a power play move. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know to the extent of the power play move it was, but I, I saw it later. And then for a long time, and it wasn't until recently that you could even view the handbook. So the things that people are being judged on, the the way the proceedings are happening, everything going on, unless you have been in that calling. Yeah. You have no idea what to expect. You have no idea what they're looking for. You have no idea what, you know, any of this is. And, you know, it's just, I I just thought it was horrific. And my husband, ex-husband now, but when we were married, he served in a number of bishoprics. Um, He served on the high council Mm. and he would go to these and I would ask him all about it. I'm like, what is it like? What do they do? And I was just fascinated. And I said, I, And then I would, like, a few days later, I'd say, have you called the person and see if they're okay? You know, and he's like, oh, that's totally inappropriate. And I said, I think you judging them is inappropriate. I think you (laughs) call them and make sure they're okay. That's what a woman would do if she was on the high council. Yeah. (laughs) Not necessarily. I did have a woman in there and she did. (laughs) That's okay. (sighs) So I did do that. I did ask for the State Relief Society president. I read the handbook. I saw that she could come. Yeah. And I asked and I just wanted a female presence. And I did tell them, I said, this is completely inappropriate. Mm. I will do this, but I, I don't agree with this. But I've also um, a long time ago in a temple recommend interview, my, the people went off. I've had a number of times where they got bug and, you know, I came out and I was still believing, and this was around the ordained women time, but I had a state presidency member that asked me in the temple recommend interview, he went off book and he just asked me, and they were pretty benign questions, but he started it with, I feel impressed to ask you if you look at porn. Oh, geez. And I just thought, oh my gosh, why are you getting that prompting about me? What, what did I do? I haven't looked at porn. Maybe it's something I read. Maybe it's, you know, you know, and I was just, I felt so unworthy. And then later I got really angry as I, I mean, at the moment I just cowered and, and then he was very sweet at the end and just want you to know that Heavenly Father loves you, and blah, 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 blah. you know, all mm-hmm. that crap. But mm-hmm. I just felt later the best way I could describe it. And I was in a presidency and I talked to the presidency about it, auxiliary presidency. And I said, I feel violated. Yes. And I would argue that any woman that has ever sat through any kind of temple recommendation, there she is one-on-one with a man. He's asking about sex, whether she can answer the questions right, which please, I mean, like I'm going to even go in there if I can't answer them. 100%. Right. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah, I just wouldn't go. Yeah. And, um, but 
but that's just me. But I also felt strongly about the whole temple recommend. There were times like when I yelled at my kids that I didn't go. I didn't feel worthy. Oh, you know. So I mean, I just I took it very seriously. You took it very so that's seriously. Why it was kind of. I kind of thought, hey, I mean, I just don't understand the point of the interview. I mean, if people should just ask themselves, hey, am I worthy? Right. And yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And how we treat each other is like so low on that scale. I don't think it really is. Is it even a question? <laughs> right. So, anyway, OK, so it's just violating. So you're saying like you communicated to the state president or whomever that that this membership council was totally inappropriate. But in your mind, what made you decide to attend? I mean, was there ever a thought in your mind that I'm not going to go because I don't deserve this? Yes, there was a thought in my mind. And I actually, it was under, I mean, it was totally under duress that I went. Yeah. But, um, but I was still very Mormon. Yeah. There's that element. But at the time my marriage was, you know, afraid and, and I wanted to, it to work out. Ah, and that was a condition of the marriage. And so I had come to my spouse and I had confessed to him and I asked him that we keep it between us, that we just work on each other. Mm -hmm. And, and I understood his feelings and I understood if he didn't want to stay married. And I said, I won't, I won't think less of you for that. Heavenly father wouldn't think less of you. I said, but involving the church doesn't help us. And I, and I did tell him, and I said, I think you know this because he knew my feelings about excommunications in general Yeah, and just church discipline. I said, if this was you, I would tell you not to go in there. Mm -hmm. I'd say, we'll just worry about it later. Um, I said, you can't tell me there aren't zillions of people that die and never confess certain things. Right. You know, and that there isn't some, you know, way that they can make it up later. They can figure it out or something. But no, for him, he was so, and I, in his defense, that's what he was taught. That that's the only way you heal. That's the only way you have to go to your priesthood leaders. You have to go. Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't appropriate. And even before that, I was in kind of counseling with the state president and it just, it wasn't an appropriate relationship. The boundaries were crossed. Mm -hmm. And I, I go into that with the book, but it's just, they're not trained therapists. <laughs> yes. They're not. And they, and I, I just felt it, it got too close. And I, I, I had heard Mormon stories too. I got more mm. information, you know, from that. Yeah. Um, different stories that I had heard that that's a common theme especially when they, they get very attached to the person that they're working with and they expose themselves and share all the stuff. And then, right. you know, they start sharing things because, you know, they want them to confess and it just becomes a very intimate relationship. Yeah. And you're both very and, vulnerable in that position, yeah. but yeah. especially you. Yeah, for sure. And as we've kind of been going back and forth and, and talking about this a little bit, I'm thinking, and I think I mentioned to you this in a text a couple days ago, but I have a sister that was excommunicated maybe like 20 years ago or so. It's been quite a while. And I am so ashamed to say that I didn't have those feelings that you're talking about of knowing it was wrong, knowing it was inappropriate, knowing it was barbaric. In my Mormon brain, I was like, well, these are the steps of the repentance process. And this is what you have to do because, you know, you you sinned in this particular way and that requires you to be excommunicated. And so in my mind, that was just part of the process. But also, so I'm ashamed about that. And then I'm also ashamed about the fact that I never spoke to her about it. I never asked her if she was okay. I never 
I just, I just never reached out in like a, you know, an empathetic way. It was just like, well, you know, that's what happens when you sin. And now looking back, cause I was so just TBM all the way. I'm so ashamed of that. I'm embarrassed. And it kind of breaks my heart a little bit because even to this day, we haven't really discussed and she's out of the church now. But at the time that she was excommunicated, she went through the whole repentance process and was rebaptized and everything. And all of all of my myself included and my whole family, all the focus was on you know, her getting back to being rebaptized. Right. And that was a really beautiful celebrated day, but there was never, I didn't even realize the trauma that she had been through. I didn't stop to think about what she had experienced and how horrific that must've been. And so now with both of us, her and I are both out of the church. In fact, I'm the one <laughs> that kind of got her out because I learned, you know, I studied and I learned all the stuff and I, my shelf completely broke. And then I went to her and I was like, did you know this stuff? And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> and she uh, she listened to what I had to say and read all the, you know, the things. And then she was out like that very quickly. But that was still to this day, I haven't talked to her about that. So it's almost like, you know, when so much time passes, you're a little bit like afraid to bring it up again. Like I should have done this a long time ago, but you know, do you want to talk about this? I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to approach it with her now. And we are very close, but that's the weird, I feel like this is the thing the church does to you because it, it indoctrinates you to where you always put the church above even your very closest loved ones, like the church comes first and empathy is always second, right? Oh, totally. hundred percent. That's what the whole theme of the book is. Yeah. Everything else is secondary people, but I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and they, and not everyone behaves that way, but that's how we're trained. Yeah. And so for you, I mean, I think you need to kind of give yourself some grace, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know, maybe I would have done the same. Yeah. And it really wasn't until, you know, in the last, 10 years that I started to think that I noticed it. And I said, this is wrong. Why are you doing this? Why are you subjecting this person to that? Why are you sitting in there? I mean, and I'm looking, it's like, well, no, we have the priesthood. I'm looking, I'm like, you have nothing. You, yeah. What do you know? I know you and you don't have that. Here. <laughs> yeah, totally. You are not some expert on this. Yes. And so it, it is really challenging and it is sad, but this is, it's interesting. And this is also, a key motivation with wanting this book to be published. So I'm just putting that out there. I need a literary agent. So anybody, I need somebody. I need I need to get their attention. I am in the yes. slush pile. I'm an unknown. I'm not in the book world. Yes. Uh, so back up just a little bit because I, I do, I want to talk about this because one of the reasons that you reached out to me was you said, I have a manuscript. I have a, I have, I've written a book and I want to, I want to get it published. And this book, tell me about the book a little bit. We're kind of jumping okay. around a little bit, but it's fine. Yeah, we are. <laughs> it's fine. This is the way my brain is. I know. And the book kind of jumps, too. Yeah. You're kind of a little on the ADD scale. You'll love it. I love it. But uh, so what it is, in the best way, it makes sense. I hope it did. Did it to you? It totally did. Yes. I thought it was fantastic. I loved how it how it skipped around a little bit. And, and yeah, yeah. it's a dual timeline book. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the book is about, well, it's titled Elegy of Anathema. 
And and I don't know what either one of those words mean. Just FYI. at the beginning. It said, um, <laughs> so elegy is a sad tale. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, and anathema is, it's Greek meaning cursed and cursed by God. Yes. And so as for in it, I quoted gospel doctrine, Bruce, or, well, Brucey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't believe no one's comparative to the shark on Nemo. There's Brucey. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about that. As much as people say, no, no, that wasn't the church that was Crusoe McConkey, it was the church. And so he said, as one who has been excommunicated is anathema. So it's cursed by God. Okay. Apostates are anathema to the church. All of these things are anathema. And so it's right there at the title uh, that that's what the book is about. And it's her sad tale of her excommunication. And, and I, I, I wanted to, and how the book, so that's what it's about. It's dual timeline. But one thing that is interesting that I thought was interesting, and so far it has appealed to my readers, we have heard over and over over and over again, and we have seen repeatedly the extreme stories of Mormon fundamentalists. Yes. Um, We have, you know, true history, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, there's no, and all of these things, they're fascinating and they're legit. But I think people don't realize, and maybe they do realize because this is the key part of Mormon stories, is mainstream Mormonism, those stories within mainstream, you know, faithful Latter-day Saints that are in your community, those stories are quite compelling um, and quite interesting. And I said it, it's set in Orange County, California, and I was born there, and I lived there till I was 10, and then we moved to San Diego, but... I wanted to set it there because I didn't want to put Utah. I wanted it to be a place where this is, first of all, this is written for a non-Mormon audience Mm. and there's a whole terminology page. Yes, that's very important. But there's all of that. And so it's Southern California. And also the characters are quite beautiful. There's a lot of glamour in it. Uh, There's a lot of money in it. Yes. It's in the background, but that is very true to the culture and the feeling of the church, it's a culture of perfectionism. It's a culture that the most successful are the ones that are promoted to the highest callings. And yes. look at conference, look how beautiful these women are. Look how, and even I was just watching recently, Nemo did this whole thing on YouTube about Elder Holland, you know, with his BBC interview. Mm-hmm. There he is sitting there, his office is gorgeous. He's got his gold walk. And, and that's the culture within the church. And so that's where the characters. That's Prosperity and gospel. Little, and it's, um, and also it's a little bit of escapism with it too, which is kind mm. of fun. Yeah. So uh, it's loosely based on your life or characters in your life, correct? Like. Kind of. They're all okay. an amalgamation. I mean, nobody is an absolute. Right. Um, they're all, they're all things that I have seen. They're funny mm. things that you see in church culture that I kind of was able to slip in there. Yes. I couldn't get everything in there. There are things, I mean, in the situations, totally fictional. However, all realistic. All mm. Oh, yeah. Could totally happen. Yes. Everything could totally happen. And, you know, with a novel, you can't tie it up neatly. It can go exactly where you want it to go. And, yeah. Um, and you can stay on topic. Whereas, you know, real life were a lot more complex than that. I and mean, life right. kind of goes, but even there's the characters. I like to think that their lives have different stages. And this is this particular story mm-hmm. of the excommunication. 
Yes, yes. And so one thing you mentioned to me was that this book was somewhat therapy after going through the excommunication. So tell me about that. So, um, so you want to talk how it came about? Yeah. Yeah. Because after your excommunication, you went like into a dark place, right? I mean, that was just horrifying. Perfect. And I, I lost a lot of weight. Mm. Um, and I look at pictures of myself. I mean, it was just, I was barely functioning. And I mean, I would see things like I, I would go to a restaurant and I would see, you know, you'd sit, you'd face the bar. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can drink that now. Mm. And then I just fall apart and start crying. Like, oh. Oh, I'm not, I'm not special anymore. I'm not, you know, I mean, it was just, it was really interesting. And I mean, now if I'm sitting in the like, woohoo, <laughs> right. But you had to <laughs> grieve that loss of specialness, right? Like, yeah. ugh, yeah. And the thing is, and I think everybody goes through this experience, but for me, it's very, I think it's very different if you get to choose the timeline, mm-hmm. if you get to choose. Now, on one hand, I'm kind of grateful because it was like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. They decided it for me. Yeah. Um, so there was but, never an, a thought in your mind that you were going to repent and go back and be rebaptized? Or, there was. And okay. I did think of that. And I there were things that bothered me. But the thing is, I, I never liked the temple. I, I wanted Ugh. to like it. I gave it the good college try. <laughs> I did everything in my power to love that place. And I just hated it. And, and really for me, the, the kicker was when they did finally change it, make it less sexist. Initially I was thrilled, but then I'm sitting there going, it's too late. Yeah. Too little, too it's late. Too late. I said that I had to go two decades like this and these young bucks that come in, they don't have to come in like I did. Right. They're not commenting to their husbands. They're not you know, there's no apology. We just change. And I was so mad. Yeah. And then, um, and now I know that there was no inspiration and, you know, anyway, the whole thing just angered me every way I sliced it. I just didn't. And then I did ask. And so I was considering going through that process and I asked my state president and I said, and the whole thing with me though, I had reached a point, no matter what I was going to be true to myself. I was going to be honest with everything. I was going to, approach everything with true integrity. If I felt it, I said it. If I didn't, I wasn't going to lie about it. I wasn't going to just say things to get me in there. This I could not live an unauthentic life. Right. And I asked, has anyone done this and chosen not to go through the steps to go back to the temple? Because you can get be baptized then a year later. Right. You can have your blessings restored. Mm-hmm. You have to petition the first presidency both times. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, no, and I would never recommend it if they didn't want to go to the temple. And I said, oh, then I just don't think I can do this. And they said, well, wait, hang on a minute. And I said, back there. I hate it. I said, I think there's something wrong with me, but I I, I get, I'm bored and I'm hungry. Well, yeah. I, there. I just can't do this. Yeah. So, anyway, now I know when I've heard like the masonry stuff, I'm like, I was right all along. This is cool. Totally. And I think most people, if they're being honest, which most people are not honest about the temple because they hate it. Right. And and it's it's shameful to say that out loud. You know, when you're in the church, it's supposed to be the most magical, spirit filled place. And I think most people feel like it's super weird and also boring and they want to fall asleep and, you know, all the things. And the only time I ever really liked it is, was if it was like War Temple Night or something and to go and be like, yep. Yeah. I'm worthy. I'm here. Yes. 
Yeah, it's honestly, I think the church creates that. It makes us be um, people who want to show our righteousness. Like we want others to view us as righteous, worthy, whatever. And that's like a huge thing is the outward appearance of, you know, are we going to temple night? Are Do we have a temple recommend? Are we serving in the church? Are we going? And I, I think I said this just on my very last podcast I, I said something about my scriptures and how I was so proud that my scriptures were all marked up and that I had used them and used them and used them. And it was like, I wanted people to see that because somehow that meant that I was, you know, super righteous because I read my scriptures, you know, that's such a Mormon way of thinking of like wanting people to notice how righteous you are. There's like a, a hierarchy of righteousness, right? <laughs> Oh, totally, totally, totally. And you hear about the people that go every week and you hear about the ones that, that go every day and you, you know, you hear stuff like that and mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. And we all, and then they're the ones that are promoted and oh, they're yeah. the ones that are called upon and they're the ones that are just so special. Right. And so it's, it just feeds itself. It really does. Totally. And, you know, and we kind of justify it. Well, if it gets me to do the right thing, then it gets me to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. But so what happened with the book, so it was in a dark, dark place. So mm-hmm. I didn't, you asked me, did I consider, I did consider, yeah. but I was so depressed. And, um, and I just, I got to the point where I thought, and I, and I had never struggled with depression and I, I know a lot of people do and I, it's, it's a very real thing and I'm not mm-hmm. minimizing it at all. Um, but I had never really felt that before. I had never felt worthless and Quite the contrary, especially growing up in the church. I mean, you really feel like you know special. you're so you are something special. Mm-hmm. Although you're reminded with your as a woman that you're really not. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> totally the actions are not in harmony with that. But and I knew this if I didn't go back, which I didn't have a burning desire to be rebaptized. But I thought if I don't, I just I I thought I was the worst of the worst. And this was yeah. there was no point. I had. I had failed my test, my mortal test, mm. and I I shouldn't be here anymore. And Ugh, yeah. it was hard. And I, I did start, I went to the point of thinking, what would be the least convenient for my family? What, if they saw found me, you know, yeah. what would be least painful for them? Yeah. And then I knew that was not a place that my mind, it was okay for me to go there. Yeah. And think about that. So I got a therapist. And that was really helpful. And I wanted someone that wasn't a member of the church. Mm. He was Catholic, which was nice because he understood the religiosity, understood, you know, the hierarchy and everything. Yeah. He was fascinated by the church. He started re- listening to Mormon stories. Oh, he anyway. did? I love that podcast. It's so good. <laughs> so when John DeLitt talks about like half our audience is a member, like, oh yeah, I know why. That's but always just- shocking to me. It's shocking to me, but also like... I got totally hooked on all of Leah Remini's documentaries and so and her podcast and everything about Scientology. Awesome. I love her voice. I, have- I do too. <laughs> and in the beginning of watching the Scientology stuff, it was like, to me, I saw them as like, whoa, they're super culty, oh, super no, weird. No, totally, totally. <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't relate to it. Now I'm like, oh right. my gosh. Exactly. We're so much the same. But in the beginning, I didn't see it. But it actually helped me to see it, though. Very slowly. It was very gradual. But that that documentary seriously helped me. We're kind of obsessed with it. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you said that your therapist was super helpful in helping you to see the just the abusiveness of how they go about this excommunication process. Didn't you share like the letters with him and such? Tell me about that. So I shared with him. So when you are for church discipline, you get an invitation letter. Okay. It's emailed to you. Some people I've heard stories like all Mormon stories where they, they don't hand deliver it or they mail it to them, Mm. but there's an official process. You get an invitation and it said, it said for conduct and becoming a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And I freaked when I read that I sent a Texas state president. I said, Conduct unbecoming. I'll tell you about some conduct unbecoming. And I started <laughs> listening like these really mean people and stuff that they were doing and how they don't let their kids play with certain kids because they're a bad example and you know stuff like oh that. Oh my goodness! Really a former state really excited president did that, and I was like, <laughs> if you're truly calling me in for conduct unbecoming, <laughs> there are about ten other people. <laughs> oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> I didn't put that in the book. But, no. uh, but <laughs> I love I that. I guarantee that line is gone from the form letter. Right? <laughs> because of your response to it, right? <laughs> anyway, so I gave it to, um, so there's a letter, invitation letter, and then after whatever the decision is, there's a letter. Mm-hmm. And they read you your letter at your, your council at used to be a court. It's now called a membership council. Yeah. So I had them okay. and um, they were both emailed to me, but I printed them out and I gave it to him and, and I said, this might help you understand it. And so the next week he came back and he said, it took me days to read these. I just, I have to put them down. I couldn't believe they're doing this, that they send this out. I had to just walk away really, and then come back to it. And then, and he said, I am so glad you shared that with me. I just, he said, if the letters are like that, I can't imagine the experience. And that helped me a lot because the letters are actually pretty tame compared to the experience. Right. That's kind of what yeah. I was thinking, too. Yeah. Like, so it's interesting and also very validating to have him point out how horrible they are, because in our minds, it's like, oh, we're we're kind of used to that. Like, that's. Yeah, we're used to being put in our place. Yes. We're used to being told told when you're not doing it right. Totally. We're, we're very much accustomed to that kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. and very much accustomed to one of our peers having the authority to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and it anyway, and so so I, I, said, I gave those to him and I was trying to kind of explain more of like the situation. And finally he said, why don't you write it down? I, the letters were helpful. If you could write down what you're feeling mm. and then we'll talk about it. So I tried to do that and journaling is really tough for me. And it's, it just emotionally kind of gets me very anxious. And I, I think it's a lot of it, like the church encouraging us to journal. Yeah. It's tied to the church. Someone, yeah. Someone over my shoulder, fact checking me and making sure I'm doing it right. <laughs> and, you know, it's just the whole thing really upset me. And then I decided, I, I, but I wanted to write it down. I wanted, I, I wanted to heal from this mm-hmm. desperately. And so I thought, well, what if I just made them fiction? I just created some fictional characters and I just wrote this out as just a fictional chapter. You know? Yeah. And here he knows the backstory. This is just, you know, a little creative writing thing. Yeah. So I did that and it was, he loved it. And he said, this is so fantastic. I understand this better. And then he had all these really great questions afterwards. And we were able to talk about it. And then he said, okay, write again. And maybe your childhood, 
you're growing mm. up here. So I wrote it at another chapter and unrelated to that first chapter and right. then, you know, different things. And so I really enjoyed the process and I thought, oh, I've got a story here. So I started to develop my characters. And um, so those first chapters I gave to him, they didn't, they're not in the book at all. Okay. But, um, but I started to develop characters and it was really more of a family saga. It was like kind of going back to the fifties when, you know, parents were married and then you yeah. know, through the seventies and, you know, and it was just kind of following a timeline um, of different families and just kind of their saga. And how they're all just, interconnected. And yeah, it was kind of going that direction. And, and I had, I mean, so I had all the characters and I had my, my main protagonist, uh, Samantha, but it really wasn't, it was just kind of like a timeline, you know, mm. and it was just, it was kind of, there wasn't like an overall, this is a story. It was just a family saga and it ah. wasn't compelling. It really wasn't going anywhere. Um, but all of their elements, it was just, it would have been like huge. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. And so, and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? This is so stupid. And I was getting really frustrated with it. And then one night, I'm now at this point separated from my husband okay. and I had filed for divorce and it was, the writing was helping me. It was helping yeah. me process what I loved about the church and it was helping me process what I hated about the church. And, um, and at this time too, I had, was listening nonstop to every podcast. I discovered RFM, <laughs> I Mormon stories. I could not get enough. And I mean, just my headphones were in all the time. <laughs> and, um, and then there was a quiet moment though. I didn't have anything on and I was driving late at night. I got a late start. I was driving out to my business. I have different locations and there's one in Amarillo and that if you've ever, so I live in New Mexico and if you're driving I 40 West, I mean, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> nothing. And it's dark. It's night. And, but I was wide awake. I'm like, I'm just, you know, driving along. And then I thought, what if Samantha? And then the whole story unfolded. And I was just like, I could not get there fast enough. You know, I was just, yeah. I got to write this down. And I'm going through in my head. And I just, I mean, I couldn't, I didn't even unpack. I just took my laptop out, sat down and started you know, typing. wrote the outline. Ooh. And oh my gosh, I loved writing that book. I mean, I just was able to write everything. And I would, you know, along the way I got some feedback, like some, my group of, I had a group of friends that had left the church. I said, what do you think? Is this accurate? Oh, on the money, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yes. I said, I'm not exaggerating this. Oh. You know, and so they were giving me feedback along the way. Yeah. And then um, I finished the book. And so for anyone that says, by the way, I am not educated. <laughs> I don't have a college degree. Um, I've never gone to any sort of, I mean, I have a high school diploma. Yeah. And, you know, I've never done any sort of literary training or anything. I've always loved to write. Okay. But, and I love to read. So I'm, you know, self-taught from that end. Yeah. Um, I, I've read a lot. I mean, by the time you read a certain age, you've read a lot. Yeah. So, um, but, <laughs> but I wrote the whole thing. I finished it uh, in on Thanksgiving, 2000. Okay. 21. 21. Okay. And that so was fast. Was, uh, what is that? Yeah. Three months. A couple months. Yeah. And it was terrible. I mean, you just puke <laughs> out the first thing and then you, I kind of cut the thing in half. Really? Really? And maybe a third of it got on the cutting room floor. It was just, if it wasn't, didn't relate to the story, if it didn't progress it, out it went. Okay. And just really sliced it down and it edited it like crazy. But, 
But for anyone that says Joseph Smith couldn't have done that, he could do it. He could yeah, do it. His story is not that great. I yeah. Mean, he did not develop any characters. There's no cohesive, <laughs> totally. you know, story. There's no, like, amazing symbolism. And, no. 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 Yeah. He couldn't even name women. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's so flat. It, and now I understand why the scriptures never called out to me. There's no story there. There really the isn't. The only story that was actually the one I loved, but I always wish they would do more of, was the one with the Jaredites. You know, the girl that um, she's like, I'm fair and I'll dance for him. And then that's the only story that's like, really? could be good. <laughs> but then they didn't put anything good in after that. It's like. <laughs> they had this whole opportunity. <laughs> So I love this idea that um, you were kind of flooded with this creative energy and this story just all came kind of flooding out of you. You know, you were already working on the book, but you'd kind of come to this standstill. But I I love that because uh, you just kind of experienced this really great creative process that I think is so fun and and yes, it's so much work going back and forth and editing and changing and fixing and, you know, undoing or, or you know, this and that. It's it's quite a process. I've never read a, or I've never read. I've never written a book. But I, yeah, just kind of learning this story from you has been super interesting. And I can imagine that it was so therapeutic to get this out oh. just to, because for me, telling my story was huge and then also helping other people tell their stories was huge and it's it's also a creative process it's also a very much of like purging all of the the thoughts in your brain and all the stuff and getting it out out there into the world it feels like letting your voice be heard did you kind of feel that experience as well oh absolutely absolutely yeah. i mean it was just so therapeutic and it was amazing and it was able to I was able to, it was interesting as I was writing, you know, you would have these experiences and one thing that I, and I think the reason the podcasts are so great and people tell their stories when they, even though their story isn't identical to what they're hearing, mm -hmm. there are elements of truth in it that they have experienced themselves. And it's like, oh, yes, yes, I get that, you know, and yeah. it's that kind of thing. And so for me to write it out so often, I mean, and especially with your kind of in a corner with the TBF and they're like, well, I haven't had these experiences. I mean, I'm fine. It's, I don't totally. have an issue with that. Or, you know, and then you kind of get on the defensive and you just, yeah, no, you don't understand. And they're like, oh, that isn't that big a deal. Or, and I hear this in conference too, they'll like give some extreme example of some heartbreaking thing that happened to someone and that person was able to let it go. And they were just this, uh -huh. you know, saintly individual. And it's like, well, <sighs> they can do it. What's your problem? Why can't right. you do it? And so it's stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that is so cruel on yes. so many levels. I mean, just to, to just dismiss. Yeah. And that's, that's what I felt like I was constantly dismissed. Yep. My grievances. And you're not allowed to voice these things. You're not allowed to talk about these things. And so to finally have a platform to voice it. And then, and I've always understood the power of a story mm -hmm. and the power of, telling a story. And I mean, it's, it's remarkable. That's where change happens. That's where people realize just how hurtful and harmful something is. Absolutely. I mean, before that, we just don't know. 
And we go to, and the church also thrives on silence. Yes. You know, their darkest things, their darkest history, they keep silent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like any abuser, they grow and they strengthen in silence. And, and I, I do think, I mean, I I mean, I think we're Mormonism, post-Mormonism is definitely having a moment Mm -hmm. that the mainstream is listening, Yeah, whether they admit it or not. And they're probably listening to us right now with the SEC. Yeah. But, or S, what is oh, it? Oh, SCMC. S, SCMC. Yeah. yeah. I'm so used to saying SEC. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just, you know, they need, they need to listen. Yes. People need to be heard. And, and the problem, too, is they chew you up and spit you out. I mean, I don't care how you leave. Mm-hmm. Anyone that has left. You've been regurgitated out. I mean, it is not some pleasant, you know, oh, we wish you well. We appreciate your service. Right. You know, well, and life. sometimes it has it is said to your face in that way, which it was for me. My bishop was was great. And, um, you know, it, yeah, he said, OK, you know, I appreciate you. I good luck, you know, whatever. I don't know exactly what he said, but. You know, it was like hearing things later about, oh, well, you know, we've been told that, you know, we shouldn't talk to you or that you are pulling people out of the church or, you know, things like this. And so they definitely silence us. And um, I mean, it's so it's so strategic, even like in general conference, when President Nelson calls us names like lazy learners and lax disciples, it's a way of like planting these seeds of like, ooh, they're bad, right? And and these are these are members of your family. This is, you know, I have I have members of my family that are still fully in the church. And every time they hear something like that from the prophet, they think less of me, right? Like it's just that's that's what they're being taught. So that is so incredibly harmful. And they do it so purposefully. They do. It's so manipulative. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. yeah, so I have a couple of questions about the excommunication. So when you received your invitation letter, you weren't surprised, right? Because you had been having some counseling with the state president. Like, you yeah, knew it was coming. He had told me before. He had okay. said, he sent a text before, and he said, I prayed about it, and I, we need to hold a counsel on your behalf. Okay. Uh, that we need to hold this this day, okay? Okay. And I said, yes, that works. And it was a Sunday, and late at night. Yeah. Ooh, I love what you said in your book about that being not for your protection, but for the churches. That's the first time that ever crossed my mind. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That didn't cross my mind in the moment, but it did occur to me later. And I've thought about it since, too. And I don't know if you remember what, with Natasha Helper, they wouldn't let her. Yes. Because she had a phone. Yes. And at the time when I heard that, I was still, so she and I were actually excommunicated the same day. No way. Yeah. And That's crazy. So, I know. Um, but even after, so I'd heard that afterwards, and even after it was right after, it took me a while before, about a month before I could listen about hers. Yeah. I was just still so raw yeah. from mine. And and when they said they wouldn't let her have her phone in, and she got really upset about it. I'm like, oh, well, of course they're not going to let her have her phone. I mean, why would they? And now I'm looking back like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I, I'm so Mormon. I sided with the church there. Yeah. Because and this is the thing that I have not heard anybody bring up. Maybe they have. I just haven't heard it. They have a note taker. 
whose sole purpose is to take notes. Mm -hmm. They get to keep copies of that transcript. Did Natasha get a copy of her transcript? No. Definitely Did not. I get a copy of my transcript? No. Did John DeLange get a copy of his? No. No. Why Nobody. the hell not? Yeah, that's so interesting. Fair. And this day and age, why the hell do you even need another person in there? You just record Just them. freaking record it. Yeah. What I mean, do they have to hide? You just say, we're recording this. Yeah. Even do a video. If you have nothing to hide, then you don't try to hide anything. So the fact that they wouldn't even let her have her phone in there, which she had her notes on, because they give you an opportunity to kind of like state your defense, right? But she should have been able to record it because they're recording it. Right. Yes. Yes. There shouldn't be any secretive thing about it just because, hey, we've got our guy. You get yours. Okay. Yeah. But it's not equal like that. No. No, they don't treat the the person as equal to them in any way. No, I know this is the church's no, it, yeah. it's it's just mind blowing. If you really want so one thing I did put in and I do remember and it was interesting having a note taker. I never made eye contact. I never mm. I, I didn't know him. I know he knew who I was, but I didn't mm. know him. Yeah. And I and I know he was he was enjoying every minute of it. They're getting off on this and the questions that they ask, I mean, they're very they're they can get pretty graphic that's what i was going to ask you about is like how specific did they get in asking you questions and did they give you ample amount of time to like state your case or to defend yourself you have all the time in the world yeah okay all the time in the world to do it and but it wasn't i wasn't at a place where like natasha was or john delin was where i was present and i understood how it's played yeah. And I wasn't, it never occurred to me to record it. It didn't occur to me to tell people I was doing it before. I mean, mm. no one knew. Right. The only one that knew was my husband. Right. So Cause you're still feeling horrible shame over it. Like it was this thing you didn't, you didn't want to discuss. It's not like you invite people, Hey, I'm getting excommunicated. Come check it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now in hindsight, I kind of wish I did. Yeah. Um, because afterwards, there's so many tells. Everyone knows what happened. Yeah. And that's part of the premise of part, part of why I feel comfortable being bold with it. And it's taken me some time to feel comfortable even expressing it. Yeah. But my father passed away last fall. And so I was with mm. all my siblings. And in that time with my siblings, you know, you're having these, they all, it was actually a really sweet experience before. He was quite elderly mm-hmm. and sick and he was in hospice. And so they all came out. But in that time, it was just my siblings and we would just, you know, talk. And I came to realize that every single one of my siblings knew I had been excommunicated, mm. even though I never said anything, even though I never voiced anything, even though it, my one sister's like, why else would you stop wearing your garments and stop going to church? Of course you were. Oh, really? Interesting. So they knew, but they never reached out to you and talked to you about it. Okay, that well, that's what I did to my sister. I mean, essentially, it was just like silence. And that's almost in some ways, it's worse than, you know, their disapproval. Their silence says enough. Like, it's, I don't know, it's painful. I don't know. And then I went out to lunch like a few months after with a girlfriend from church. And we have been friends for over a decade. And that was the only time she ever brought up an excommunication. She talked to her brother. Mm. And I'm like, oh. Everybody knows, yeah. you know, it was just, yeah. Was you know, sad. she brought it up for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. And actually what she said was really interesting because her husband was interviewed. He was a bishop and he was interviewed when they were doing a new state presidency. And it was while her husband was bishop and her husband was a very free thinking. And I think this couple actually will eventually leave the church. Yeah. They know the history and everything a little too well. Yeah. And they're pretty compassionate to those who leave. Yeah. Uh, That's a sign. But, they're going to be out yeah. too. <laughs> Their kids are too young, but one of their kids is going to be gay or something. Yeah, that will be the kicker. Yep. But when her husband was interviewed by the general authorities, he said to them, "I will not excommunicate anyone." Oh I think he gosh. said it. He probably was a little more diplomatic of how he yeah. phrased it, but he did say he saw the trauma with his brother-in-law, and just, he doesn't understand the point of it. So and that was probably the end of his. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's never going any higher in his in his status in the church, and they, I guarantee, they made a note of that. Like, isn't that so interesting? That is interesting, and he didn't want it. That's why I think that couple, I, I think, eventually they'll leave. Yeah, but but the fact that she brought it up, though. Yeah, yeah, and so with the, that that actually gave me more confidence with the book too, because. You can either have that branding and everyone just, you know, try to conceal it and hide it. Or you can take that scarlet letter and you can embroider it beautifully yeah, and, and create this magical story about it. And I, that's what I chose to do. Ooh, I love that. So, okay. So I had one other question about the actual process. So when you go in this meeting with all these men, you had the stake relief study present with you. They all question you, you talk about it. And then my understanding is they send you out of the room and then they kind of counsel with themselves and like take a vote. Is that how it works? I don't know what they do when you're not in there. Okay. But I th- I assume that's what they do. Okay. Uh, now, one thing that was interesting, I did once I felt, okay, it took me a while to be able to listen to anyone's excommunication, but those are so interesting on Mormon stories. On Mormon stories, yeah. And the one that actually was the most intriguing was the Sam Pinson one. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh my goodness. So yes. So that's where I put in the typing. You, wherever he, the type, the guy that was taking notes was right next to that microphone. Cause you could hear him. as people are talking yeah. with the typewriter. It, it's just chilling. Yes. So good. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like, that is one of my favorite I mean, interviews on Mormon stories of all time. It was amazing. I loved that interview so much. It was amazing. And I loved when he said something like, well, if you worked for a company, he's like, yeah, if I worked for a company and I'm taking people's money, I have a duty of care, of responsibility to tell them the truth. Right. People are taking their money. You know? Yeah. Anyway, I forgot how he said it, but it was so good. It was so, so good. And the other thing, too, was so interesting. It was just their voices. They were in stake president mode. They were in high council mode. Uh-huh. And then after they had the decision, they did it. They're like, oh, do you like barbecue? And suddenly they turn that off. We're putting and they're friends again. To being friends. Oh. You know, let's never mind what we just did there. We were just but that's the way the handbook is stated. That's the way they, right. it's all written out that that they have to behave that way. It's so gross. Just barf. Like, how can you pretend to be my friend right after you have just excommunicated me? So no, and you have killed that friendship. I mean, absolutely. You chose you made a choice. Yeah. So did you find out that night of your council, yeah. or was it later? Okay. So they brought. Did they bring you back into the high they council do. room and say, "This is our decision"? Wow. And then, and then they said, "Do you have any questions?" I said, "No." And and I do remember just sitting there, just 
kind of panting. Yeah. That's painful. It was, it was brutal. And the one thing that was true to the book, I did have kind of a shouting match mm. with my state president in the parking lot afterwards. Oh, good. Um, yeah. I'm glad that was accurate. I didn't tell him, fuck you. I <laughs> Dang it. I do regret that. I know, right? Ah, that and part of the book, I was like, yes! Into this, and you're going into that, and they do that to you. Go ahead, sit in that meeting and say, fuck you. Right. Walk out the door. What else are they going to take away? Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing They're they can do. blessing you, and you're not dignified enough. Right. Not, no. Don't even worry about that. Right. Don't just quietly go off in the night. And really, right. they've taught us this. They taught us to their testimony of truth and righteousness and all of these things. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I don't feel bad about it. I don't, I, I think it's, it's a story that needs to be told. There is a call to action yeah. uh, within the story. Yes. There is, um, I mean, and it just breaks your heart. I mean, you, you, you just see how healthy normative behavior is just totally, ripped away from a human and and just repackaged with the church and it just it's just horrible to yeah see that. and it's really hard yeah but it's how it is yeah absolutely and I the church is obsessed with sex now I should give a little <gasps> warning it is a little salacious no did that bother you did it like, not did you at ask? all yeah I didn't think so not a single woman <laughs> has been faced by it that every single man is like oh my gosh I can't believe how slicious it was. I'm like, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not like Outlander or something. No. Not, no. In fact, I would have put in a little more. I would I would have been I fine. I would add a little more. I would have taken it out. But, <laughs> but I also love slutty, slutty romances. But yeah, I thought this sex was fantastic. And the, the relationships in general were just really beautiful. And even like, like the relationships between father and daughter and siblings and, you know, this other family that, that the two families that were so close that like the other siblings seemed like older siblings to you. And like all of those relationships were just gorgeous. They were they were so well written and really relatable and I thought it was beautiful. And the sex was fantastic. I thought all of it was great. I I think the men who were uncomfortable with it were probably only uncomfortable talking to you about it. But they had to have liked that too, right? I think they did like it. Now, Dean Ace from Mormon News Roundup, she wrote yes. it in one day. And she's like, oh, I can't believe how delicious it is. <laughs> I think it totally, it's, his brain exploded. But, yes. Uh, but he did like, but he did say, I mean, whether he liked it or not, but I mean, days later, the next day, days later, he's like, I can't stop thinking about the book. I can't stop thinking about the story. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. And even those, and it's interesting, people are very invested into the characters that I've mm-hmm. noticed they either, and me personally, I love all of them. And yeah. I hope that comes across. I mean, I truly, and I tried to develop complex characters. I mean, they are mm-hmm. truly real people to me. They are. They're both good and bad. Yes. They're, they're strong and weak. They're they're everything. They're they're the people that we know in our lives. Totally. You know, we're heroes and villains all at the same time. All of us are. Totally. And yeah. I, I think I said uh, to you when I was done with it, I think it took me it took me a little longer, maybe like five days to read it. But I think I said to you, I love it and I hate it. <laughs> 
Yeah. And the reason why I said that is because, of course, I, I loved it. Like I was just saying, like I loved all the relationships and the storyline and and a lot of it was like super endearing. And then and then it was super beautiful to like fall in love with these people. But then there was also like parts that were just hard to read and hard to like it was just like remembering you know it was remembering like I I think the excommunication itself was like the hardest for me because in my mind I was just like fuck them why is it you know like I was mad about it I was like what is happening why do they have this power over her why are they you know why do they get to ask her these questions and say these things because that was one of the first things to go when it came to my testimony was why do I have to answer to a man? You know, um, yeah. why do they get to ask me these questions? Why is it their place? Why, you know, I just, I really, that was one of the first things that really started to bother me early on in my, in my kind of faith transition, I guess I would call it. But so, yeah, there was definitely a love hate. I loved though. I felt a lot of nostalgia as you talked about, you know, growing up years and things that you experienced in the church. And I think you did a really good job of sharing the beautiful parts of Mormonism as well as the hard parts. Right. And so, yeah, I just really connected with that because there's so much of my Mormon upbringing that I loved. I I know I was great in the church. I had a beautiful life. Oh, me too. And that's what I wanted to show. Most people do. I mean, most of these families, yeah. is there abuse? Sure. Is yes. there? Absolutely. But a lot of people, there's a lot of love. Yes. And their heart's in the right place. They want to do the right thing. The problem is the church kind of gets in the way of that. Mm-hmm. And instead of encouraging that good behavior, it's it does the opposite. Totally. But so I wanted to show that and I wanted to express, especially because it is written for those that are, you know, have never had exposure to the church. When they see these things and they just see the excommunication, it's like, well, what's mm-hmm. what's wrong with you? Why would you stay in that? Why you haven't lost anything here, right? You should be dancing on the table celebrating. You're free. Right. Yeah. You know? And intellectually, logically, we all know that. Yeah. The reality of it is it's not that simple. There no. are some positive things there. The community is such a rich one. Mm-hmm. It is. And then just that family dynamic of eternity too. Mm-hmm. Um, that really, it does strengthen a family in many ways because they're special and they're yeah. together and, you know, and all of those elements and they come across in the way they live their daily lives. Yeah. And that is a beautiful part of Mormonism. Totally. And hopefully I'd like to continue with that tradition, you know, throughout the generations and the ages. And I, and that's, that's really what I wanted to show too, that she did keep that part. Yeah. Um, so, you know, anyway, it's just, yeah. And then got rid of the stuff she didn't like, yeah. which is hard to do. It's much easier said than done. And yeah. I think in the story there, there's, there's some time gaps where the reader has to kind of yeah draw their own conclusion. Piece together some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but. That's that's in the working phase. That's yeah. in the getting to that, and that's that's something that I, I think you're interviewing a lot of people at that phase. Yeah, and there's a lot of beauty in that phase too. So maybe my next book I kind of explore that phase. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. I loved. I mean, it was not a predictable uh, ending, uh, or even Did just you like the ending. Y- yes, but I was shocked okay. by it. Well, I have mixed feelings. I'll be honest. I liked it, but I also, I wasn't expecting it. And so in my mind, I had a different ending. And then I was like, wait a second.
second. <laughs> but but there were multiple things that were a twist that I didn't see coming, you know, that, so it's not, if you go back, you can see them. Really? Yeah. There are a lot of hints. Interesting. Okay. Because yeah, I was like, wait, what? Um, the conversation yeah. with her dad, I was just like, psh, my mind was blown. <laughs> there are quite a few hints about that. One. Is there really? I'm dying over that. So yeah, so, so good. You did just a fantastic job. I'm super impressed and I want to help you. So tell me, how, you know, if it, what, what's the word that you want to get out? If any of my listeners know somebody or have a connection, what is it specifically that you're looking for? And how can they reach out to you? How can they get a hold of you or contact you? Okay. I, I think fortune favors the brave. Uh, the bold, <laughs> yes. Say. Yes. So, I mean, if I, if I, if I could choose anything with this, Reese Witherspoon would pick this up with a book club. <gasps> Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, I mean, I think if it got her attention, she'd love it. I mean, I know one of her favorite plays is the Book of Mormon. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. So at least years ago, she said that she loved that. Um, Yeah. So in an interview or something. But I love her. So So I do, too. All her authors are female. She loves to do debut authors, too. I've done some studying. I have queried every single book agent that has been a Reese Witherspoon really? club person. So far, no one's taken the bait. That's but, okay. But I'm in the slush pile. I know they have assistance upon assistance. Yeah. And if for some reason it doesn't get their attention, it doesn't get their attention, if they yeah. even read it at all. Yeah. So what I need is an introduction. I need a one-on-one. Um, DBase from Mormon News Roundup, he's helping me out. He's trying to get me with, is it Signature Books? The, oh, yes. And I reached out to them. Yeah. Okay. And I haven't heard anything back yet. But, okay. Um, but really, I mean, I would like a major publisher. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a great television show. And it's modern day. And because you can go back in time, too, with history, flashbacks, you could cover things like, you know, when they finally reversed the priesthood policy, the temple explosion, mm, you know, with yes. the priesthood. You know, you could go, you could, when Holland gives his musket talk, you could do an episode <sighs> relating to that oh my Um, gosh yes you could do all sorts of things with it yeah i could Uh, totally see it being a series and i love that this is just mainstream mormonism this is not fundamentalist um extremism in any way like we've seen a lot of that we've seen big love yes yeah yep and we've seen the the um oh my gosh who's the guy who's the stay sweet pray and obey or whatever yeah, yeah, and then we had Under the Banner of Heaven. We had Under the Banner of yeah. Heaven. Yeah, we had the Mark Hoffman right. story. We've had, you know, Lori Vallow and D- Chad Daybell in the news, like all those kinds of stories. And they are really good. And and uh, I think people are super interested. But this really tells a very mainstream Mormon story, like very. I, and it's a compelling mainstream it story. It totally and, is. And um, no, I think it's like how like the show Succession and Yellowstone, I mean, that's, yes. they're extreme people. Not everybody knows somebody that's this, but it's also a mainstream kind of yeah. depiction of things. And I think it's it's like that. Yeah. I think it's like that. And how many, I mean, it's just the, the, the possibilities are endless with what you could cover. And for me, my next step too, I, I need to start writing it, but I'd really like to extrapolate and explore Ariadne's story yeah. I want to focus on Crosby's story. She has a story too. 
you know, there are some kind of branch out a little bit. Yeah. Within this family tree. Yeah. I'm also interested about Chess's story. Chess's story is interesting, isn't it? I don't know if I, I know. His is great. Yeah. Isn't he awesome? Yeah, I like him. He's a good character. Yeah. 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 So, so they were all really fun to write. And uh, yeah. So you yeah. need a literary agent. You need a. A publisher. A publisher. I just see somebody in the book world. Okay. And I've noticed with the literary query, some of the agents will say, if someone is referring you, please put their name in the subject matter. Hmm. That's code for, okay, if, if it's a referral of someone we know, we will read this. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing I need. I need an introduction. I know if okay. I just get an audience. I mean, you tell me, Ada, you read it. We didn't know each other before. Yeah. Do you think this is worthy of publication? Do you think people will buy this book? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No question. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. But I, it was, it was really fun to write and. Oh. It was yeah, fun to read. Just, so. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. So, so I'm hopeful and I, you know, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep. Good. And try to get it. And, and I don't want to go the self-publishing route. It won't get the exposure that I need, okay. that I want. It won't make the difference that it needs to make. Yes. Unless it's mainstream. Yep. I, yep. I can totally see that. Um, so how can people contact you? Um, do you have a social media? Do you want to share your email? Like, what's the best way to reach out to you? Oh, I don't know. How do they reach out to you to your show? Um, Mormon Discussions? Uh-huh. They can, they can message okay. me on Mormon Discussions. Do you want me to have, like, direct questions to me, and then I can forward them on to you, or what's... Yes, is that okay? Yeah, that absolutely. Good? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that would be great. So you can reach out to me on Mormon Discussions Podcast. You can also go to dissidentdaughters.org. You can also find me on Instagram at Dissident Daughters. Um, you can message me on any of those platforms. I always get your messages, and I can forward them on to her. Um, listeners, you know, anybody that knows anyone, <laughs> let's get this, let's get this book published. It's very good. You're all going to want to read it. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, That's cool. I, I, I do. Well, yeah. I love that it was therapeutic for you too. Like that is, that's healing, right? Like I think yeah. it will, I think it's just yeah. a really beautiful beautiful way to to tell your story so i'm so glad that you reached out to me i'm so glad that divas gave you my number and we <laughs> have talked and that you sent me your manuscript that's been very very cool so i'm so glad to have you on and thank you for your time and just for being here today thank i appreciate you. it thank you so much for listening if you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you can, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation, of course, but better yet, set up a monthly donation of even just five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. <laughs> and here's a place where you can donate and know that you're supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support. <laughs>